if, uh, if you're just jumping in partway through this seminar, there's an outline probably in the back that says talk number one. We've taken two days to do that, but if you did a two-day seminar and then are jumping in the middle, um, I know that kind of stuff happens at summer conference all the time, so um, you can get that. I also am going to podcast the talks, providing all the technology works right, I think it will, um, at RUF at Belmont. If you uh, go to iTunes and search under podcasts, you can find RUF at Belmont. You don't need to have an iPod, you know, to get podcasts. You guys all know that, right? You can get iTunes software for free. I think you can get podcasting without that, but I don't really know how to do that. Um, let's see. Today, we're going to talk about, um, I guess, a couple more points and then kind of launch into some thoughts on why we sing so many hymns in RUF. Um, I thought that would be good to talk about because I think what I want you to understand is we don't do that just because we're hymn snobs. At least I hope that's not why. Um, I hope that it comes out of our convictions about what the Bible has to say about worship and the point of worship and the focus of worship um, and also connects to some of the points I'm going to make today. So let, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll start off. Lord, we do thank you for the glorious privilege of worship. And Lord, I thank you that even when we're um, sort of half-hearted and cold-hearted in our worship, Lord, that you still pursue us and chase us down and open our eyes to see your beauty. We thank you for that. Thank you for this week. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us all now the ability to um, pay attention well, and even more importantly, may your spirit um, have his way with us as we consider these ideas about worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you know, if we go back, I kind of had this little definition. It's not the perfect definition of worship. There's lots of great definitions of worship, but the one I um, started off this seminar with, I put at the top of this paper as well. So let, let's go back, revisit that, and then we're going to unpack some more of it. Worship involves all of me in all of life, and that's kind of what we talked about in Romans 12, that worship isn't just your head, it isn't just your emotions, it isn't just your will, Lord, I just want to do this, I just want to do that, but it really is a holistic response in all of life, that's Romans 12, you know, in view of God's mercies, um, offer your bodies, your whole being, as a reasonable or a logical or a spiritual sacrifice, okay? So worship involves all of me in all of life with all of God's people, past, present, and around the world, using the gifts God has given us under the regulation of his word and in response to his revelation, which culminates in Christ and him crucified toward the goal that his kingdom would be spread to the whole world. Let me just unpack that a little bit. We've talked already about um, in response to his revelation, which culminates in Christ and him crucified, the idea that worship is a dialogue. God speaks and we respond, and God speaks and we respond. And he speaks not just in the Bible, but he speaks in creation, and he speaks through the sacraments. Um, and there's this dialogical um, sort of flow to, to worship particularly the worship service, but even worship in all of life. Um, everything you do is a response to something God has already said. Do you realize that? Everything that exists is part of what we call general revelation. Everything God has created is stamped with meaning. And all the time, we're interacting with what God has said. When you get up in the morning, you're interacting with what God has said when you get up out of bed. Um, when you have sex, you're interacting with something God made that says something. That's why if you try to make it say something else other than what God intends for it to say, things get all screwed up. Everything that we do 
um, is in dialogue with God and what he said because the creation doesn't just witness to his, his glory, it actually declares his glory, the psalm said. It's an active dynamic that God is preaching at us through the creation. And so, you know, everything, all of your life is either lived in conscious response, in conscious, thankful, grateful response to what God has done and what God has said, or what often happens is we try to take the things that God says, I made this for my glory and for you to, to love me and serve me through this. We take it and try and make it say, I'm the king of the world and I can take care of myself. Do you realize, you know, the, 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 this, we're still talking about worship affects every moment of your life. Um, when we come together in corporate worship, it's, again, coming, we're coming back to our senses. We're seeing things more clearly so that when we go out, we, we maintain that. We carry that understanding and that vision that we've gotten in corporate worship. We carry it out into all of life. Um, so it's, it's all of me in all of life with all of God's people. Now, this is, this is an important point I'm going to talk about in a minute, so I'm going to skip it right now. Um, using the gifts God has given us, again, I'm going to talk about that in just a second, under the regulation of his word. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit probably tomorrow because I think that a couple of the questions that you, we threw out at the beginning, um, I'm going to hit that regulation of God's word. What does that mean? You, in reform circles, you hear about this thing called the regulative principle, and I want to talk about that, but we'll do that tomorrow. Um, which culminates in Christ and him crucified. I told you, right, the point of worship is that Christ would be more beautiful and believable to us that's what the Holy Spirit's after. That's what God the Father and God the Son are all after that. Toward the goal that his kingdom would be spread to the whole world. Worship should never be disconnected from working for the kingdom. Worship is always connected to working for the kingdom. That's why you know, the Lord connects those things in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's worship language. All glory be to your name. And then it goes, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it gets into, give us this day our daily bread, right? In other words, we, we get our priorities set. We, we come into worship. We recognize we have a father. We have a father. Hallowed be his name. We praise him for who he is, for what he's done. Then we, we sort of, through worship, seek for God to align us with what he's doing in the world. In worship, we have our priorities set straight, right? Or ho hopefully, ha you know, we, we have a chance to, to have that happen. And then it's after, you know, we sort of get to soak in, God, may your kingdom come rather than my kingdom. Then we're ready to ask for things like daily bread. It makes a big difference the way you pray for things, whether you've sort of focused on God the Father, the fact that you have a Father, um, that all glory should be to his name, that our goal should be for his kingdom to come. Uh, Rosemary Miller, a woman I really appreciate, um, said that whenever you pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, what you're really praying is, Lord, dismantle my kingdom. Because your kingdom really is the chief obstacle um, to you being a part of God's kingdom. And so we, we need that before we pray for, you know, help me get into graduate school or, you know, help this relationship to work out. Because the way you pray for those things, do you ever find that you pray, the more you pray about things, the more anxious you get? It's often because we're not focusing on the fact that we have God who is our Father and we're not kind of sort of asking what does it mean for his kingdom to come. Then I can pray for this. Lord, help me to get into graduate school if it be your will. But Lord, may your kingdom come. 
whether it's through this thing that I think you're leading me to or whether you would shut that door. So, Lord, may your kingdom come. All right. All right. So I just kind of throw that in there. Um, the goal, worship should never just be about us just sort of sitting there forever and just navel-gazing. Um, do you remember the, the story on the Tra- Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus sort of unveils some of his glory? And Peter, always Peter, says, Lord, let's stay here. Let's build these tabernacles right here, and we'll just stay here. This is great. This is what we're, what we're all about. But Jesus says, no, I've got to go down the hill onto Jerusalem to suffer and die. And, and the Christian life is, is always that way. We're not, we don't just sit in the Mount of Transfiguration. We go, as the book of Hebrews says, we go outside the city gate to the place of shame where Jesus was crucified, and we meet him there. Jesus is going to draw us from the sanctuary out into the world because his movement is always towards taking the kingdom out. The kingdom is expanding, and worship should be connecting us to that. All right? So, backing up into the definition, but moving on in the outline. Worship with all God's people. Now, this is an important thing because I think that one of the, one of the concerns I have with a lot of worship in Reformed churches and Reformed tradition is that we're, we, whether we explicitly do this or just implicitly do this, we give the idea that there's a certain golden age and that all really true good worship should conform to the cultural sensibilities of one particular um, area of the world and one particular period of time. Now, I'm not going to argue that, you know, that, um, that all cultures are, are evil. What I'm going to argue is that all cultures are fallen and that God is a creative God who created a whole world of peoples. And at the end of the book of Revelation, what you see, the goal that we're headed for is for all races, tribes, tongues to be brought into the kingdom. Not only that, for the kings of the earth, it says in Revelation 21, will bring their splendor before the Lord. And it, and it will not be unclean. Now, there, I think there's this vision that cultural productions from all the cultures are going to be part of the worship of God's saints in heaven. I had a PCA teaching elder one time tell me that he thinks we're all going to sing Bach in heaven because there really is no better worship music. And I just, I, I looked at him and said, I don't even know how to talk to you about this. Um, now, I'm not, a, I'm not against Bach. I think it's wonderful. But I think there's other good music out there. I think there's no music out there that's perfect. I think anything made by human beings after the fall is flawed. But nothing made by human beings can escape giving evidence to God's creativity because he's the one behind all creativity and all um, the, anything that we do, right? So I, I think that when you start talking about some of these issues about different cultures, you need to understand the Bible says all cultures need to be critiqued by God's word. And it's not enough for us just to say this culture is good and is perfect and other cultures need to conform to this culture. That's really, in a lot of ways, what the book of Galatians is about. You realize. There, there are people who say, okay, you've become a Christian, but now you need to adopt Jewish culture as well. And Paul doesn't say Jewish culture is bad, but he says it's bad to impose that on people and tell them that unless they adopt certain cultural values from other cultures, that they are not really serving God or glorifying God. It's a really important issue. The reformers were actually very interested in this issue. They described it as Christian freedom the importance of Christian freedom. And in the history of Christian worship, there's been different 
kind of ways that people have gotten at this. I don't know if you realize, but in the early centuries of the church, there really was a lot more variety and indigenous music in various places um, around the world, or at least where Christianity had spread. Um, Gregory the Great, who's the guy who's you know known for Gregorian chants and then among other things, decided that you know and there probably were some excesses going on of people just doing kind of some crazy music that maybe was I don't know some of the church leaders thought was a little too emotional or passionate. And so Gregory's idea was that we would set up a singing school in Rome and bring all the people from all the different places of the church and bring them all to Rome and teach them this is the way you sing and then send them back out and make sure that everybody sang the same way. I think that was a tragedy. And for you know the next thousand years, it was soon after that that the Catholic Church decided that lay people shouldn't sing in church. I don't know if you realize this or not. I know we always talk about the Reformation being a time when the Bible was restored to the people. And the Lord's Supper in both forms, brought the, the blood and the, the, um, the body of Christ, um, all that's true, but also one of the things that was restored at the Reformation was that people, for the first time in a thousand years, got to sing in the worship service instead of just the trained church choirs. And one of the Catholic um, cardinals at the time said that he was more afraid of Luther's hymns than he was his writings. And in his opinion, the Reformation spread more because of the, the hymns and the writings, and that's often been true. The same thing happened in the Arian controversy. The Arians spread Arianism, which was this idea, you know, false idea about who Christ was and that he was the first created being rather than being eternal God. Um, they spread that often by popular little ditties that, they, you know, they made, they made these little songs um, teaching their doctrine instead of the popular tunes. And so then Athanasius and some of the other church leaders who were trying to combat that did the same thing. A guy named Ambrose, you know, is, is famous for doing that sort of thing. So the point I'm trying to make is there's often been a struggle between sort of church establishment and indigenous sort of music. But I really, I really don't see anything biblically to argue that Western classical tradition should be given a privileged place in the worship music of God's people, except for this. I do think that we should celebrate the best of the past, the present, and even be open to the future, right? I think our worship should at the same time model model that we are a people who are bigger than just the people sitting in this room. And I think that goes two ways. I think it goes sort of across the cultures and it grows across the generations. That we understand, biblically speaking, that the church is bigger than just your friends, than just your peer group, than just our culture. The church is bigger even than those who are alive right now. The book of Hebrews actually says that when we come and we worship, that we gather in the presence of God along with all the angels who are worshiping and the saints whose rest is one. The saints who have went before us, those Christians who went before us. You remember how Jesus makes this point that God is the God of the living. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. That those who have went before us are living. And so the church is bigger than just we are. And I do think that we should, that, that should that should be modeled in our worship services. That's why we do want to be connected to the tradition, I think musically and um, through various different ways. But we also want to be open to the fact that the spirit is working now. One of my favorite quotes about this is from a guy who wrote a book called Retro Future, just thinking about the church and postmodern world. And he says that we need to give young people roots and wings. 
In other words, we need to have rootedness in, in sort of the culture, or not the culture, but the tradition, because the church you know, didn't, didn't just start up you know, 10, 20 years ago. The Holy Spirit didn't just begin working you know, 10 years ago. Um, he's been working for a long time, doing all kinds of wonderful things. And so we need to be rooted in that tradition, but we also need to have wings. We need to feel that we can add our part to that. The best way I know to think of it is to think about kind of how a musician learns to play jazz. Um, when, I, when I went to Berkeley College of Music, you know, one of the things that, that you're taught to do is to study the masters. Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Wes Montgomery, in my case, because I play guitar. And, and even sit down and methodically learn their solos, note for note, and try and figure out why did they play this note against this chord change, and all that kind of stuff. And get that stuff into your, into your head and those sounds into your ear. And yet, one of the things that happens is interesting is a lot of people have the experience when they go to music school that they lose kind of their own personal style when they graduate. But then after a few years, it, there's sort of that, some of that stuff they've learned assimilates into them. And then they, their style begins to reemerge and they're better for it. I think in a lot of ways we should think about Christians as, as sort of like that. I mean, we're part of the tradition. We have to kind of learn the ropes, as it were. But then we want to be able to add, add to it and build upon it. Um, I think improvisation is actually a really good model for Christian discipleship, rather than just cookie-cutter Christianity, where every Christian is supposed to look exactly alike and do exactly the same thing. I don't think that's true at all. Um, but I, I do think that we connected to tradition, but we seek to know how we're going to add our own voice to it. So I don't think there's a good reason, for instance, for us to think that you know we need to bring Western European music to peoples all across the world and tell them that they're not worshiping well unless they're doing that. I do think that it would be great for them to appreciate some of the best of the productions of Western European culture as well as some of the productions of their own culture. I remember years ago going over to Ghana in West Africa along with some other musicians and part, we donated um, instruments that have been, or we gave instruments that have been donated. Um, and we also, I guess, like tried to give guitar lessons and different things to people that were Christians that wanted to try to serve uh, in their churches, but also even reaching their culture through music. All right. It wasn't my idea. There was some good about it. There were some weird things about it, too. But anyway, one thing that was really distressing is we had one night where different worship teams from all these different churches in Ghana um, would come and sort of perform, and then we would kind of give them some feedback on maybe how they could improve different ways. It was so distressing to me that we didn't hear one group that did anything that was at all indigenous African in style. They all came and played like what they'd learned from TBN, right? From like the 700 Club and from like sort of this really cheesy, charismatic, bombastic worship. And it was horrible. And then there was, there was one night when, you know, some of, you know, some of the guys would play sort of their own music. Like, what disconnect? Listen, music is like a language, right? And we don't need to pretend that we're 17th century Scottish people to worship in a reformed way. That would be very similar to the Galatians heresy, in my opinion. To say that, okay, you're worshiping, you're worshiping okay, but to really worship well, to do the very best, to do excellent, we use all these sort of loaded, loaded terms, each of which are open to debate. Um, you need to do it in this way. Now, again, I think there's things to commend in, in all kinds of musics. But what I'm asking you to do, in some ways, is more intuitive to y'all, because y'all live in a world that's much more multicultural than your parents. And almost by intuition, you understand that there's beautiful things all over the place. 
that Western European tradition does not have a corner of the market on beauty and on reverence. Um, I, I'll never forget, there was one, one point in that time over in, over in Ghana where they did sort of a traditional African dance kind of thing for us. And there was this point at which the, the person who I guess was representing God, you know, again, don't get on me, but I, I didn't do this, you know. But the, the person who was sort of representing God would turn around and face people. And whenever he did, all the people that were there would sort of jump up, turn around backwards, and fall flat on their faces. And I thought, man, that's a, that's a, really, that's a really powerful image. We don't do that in our churches. Um, I'm not saying that you should, but I don't know. I mean, you know, in our, in our Presbyterian churches, we tend not to do much bodily motion whatsoever. I don't know why, when you look at the Psalms, they're full of um, directions about bodily posture, right? So you need to understand that often, you know, what, what we've had handed down to us feels right to us, but, you know, you have to be really careful about making theological judgments on what matters, or what are matters often of culture. Now, again, I'm not a cultural relativist um, in this. I do believe you can make judgments about things that are better than other things, but I... I'm real hesitant to say that this culture is always better than this culture. I think all culture has good and bad in it, and all cultures will be critiqued because they have elements of, of, of responding well to God's glory and elements of, of um, falling into idolatry in all kinds of ways. All right? I know that was a long kind of thing, but I, I think it's an important topic and one that you're going to have to wrestle with more and more um, in the church in the years to come. Marva Dawn, who I mentioned before, has a great thing. She says, if our local church bodies really reflected the diversity that the body of Christ really should have, then everybody should get used to singing songs they don't like. I think that would help a lot with the worship wars. If everybody walked into church saying, because the body of Christ is bigger than my culture and my cultural preferences, I expect to sing songs that I don't like today. Um, biblically, this, um, I think there are a couple passages of Scripture that have application for church music. One is in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. I think there's a church music application for that. Seriously. You know, I, I remember, oh, I, don't know, I hope none of you have had the misfortune to sit under Bill Gothard um, in his teachings. Um, if you ever offered that opportunity, run screaming. But he has this, um, and I, if, you, if you're offended by that, come talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to back down. But he, um, <laughs> he has this little, little pamphlet um, nine reasons why the rock beat is evil in any form. And the first reason is your parents don't like it. And the other eight reasons are, you know, obey your parents, submit to your parents' preferences. Um, you know, that, that's, that's not really an appropriate way to decide those sorts of issues. Um, honor your mother and father does not mean idolize them. Submit to your parents in the Lord means that the Lord and his word actually critiques your parents. And even if, if your parents say, I don't like this music, but they can give no biblical basis for it, gosh, the Bible's pretty big on don't call something sin that the Bible doesn't call sin. It's one of our preliminary principles in the Presbyterian Church in America, which is the denomination that RUF is part of. Um, we have a thing called the Book of Church Order, and we have these preliminary principles. And one of them is, do not call things sin that God has not called sin. So beware of that in these debates about about church music and worship and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's a church music application for fathers don't exasperate your children, but there's also a church music application 
for be submissive to those who are older. Listen to what they have to say. I've had some of my students who went on to be worship directors in different churches, and I always encourage them, if you can, put together a committee of some of the older folks and some of the younger folks, and let them talk to each other about the songs and the things that they like in, in worship, what they really appreciate, and why. Because it's so easy for sort of us to have these little camps where you know the, old, the older people kind of are on this side and the younger people over here, and each of them just sort of talks amongst themselves and to, to sort of slander the other side because, I don't know, it's hard, for, it, you know, so I, I've had this experience sometimes where we'll be doing some praise course in church and I think it's really cheesy and pretty vacuous of content. And yet, I'll, as soon as I think that, I, I, I inevitably look up and look a, look a few rows up and somebody's got their hands in the air and they're just, you know, Lord's really using that, that song to help them, you know, connect with truth in some sort of way. And I just have to go, you know, I, I'm not saying we can't make judgments about songs that we sing and things that we do in our worship services, but I think we need to be more humble and that we need to truly try to hear from each other what it is that we appreciate about what we're doing. And I would say, you know, if you've really come to appreciate hymns that we do in RUF and you talk to friends that don't get that, be charitable and seek to understand what is it that, you know, for a lot of people, hymns mean, you know, boring, pretentious, you know, um, emotionally distant sorts of things. Um, you know, and, and anyway, I'm going to get into that in a little bit. So that, that's my first one. Any thoughts on that, about worshiping with all of God's people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The question is, I heard that contemporary worship um, is not as effective because of repetition both in the words and also in the music and the chord changes. Um, well, I think the Bible doesn't, doesn't sort of lay down sort of the holy chord changes or the holy melodies. Um, I, I'm, I'm really pretty sure that if you heard the music the songs were set to, it would sound pretty dissonant to your ears because tempered tuning, the way we hear, you know, even things being in tune is a pretty recent invention, all right? Um, and so, you know, the, I, I think that we need to be really careful about trying to derive some kind of, you know, does the Bible say repetition is wrong? Well, Jesus says that vain repetition, you know, is the way the, the heathens pray and that we shouldn't do that. Um, but what, what was not, what the, the way the heathens use vain repetition is to attempt to control God. We, we have lots of little pottery shards and papyri, um, of prayers that people offered in the time of Jesus to their different gods. And what's really interesting is they usually are strung together about 20, 30, 40 different names of God, any name they can think of. And then a quick little, you know, heal my sickness, amen. Um, the way people prayed, and you even see this somewhat in some of the spiritual warfare encounters in the Bible, people thought that if you knew the true name uh, of something that you had power over it. It's part of the worldview of kind of paganism and witchcraft, right? And so you see that, and I, I, I suspect that Jesus is saying that, listen, prayer is not about getting control over God, because the Psalms have repetition. You know, John Frame's book on the contemporary Christian music debate, I don't, I, I, I think he does a good job of responding to some of the arguments that seem good, like this one, 
but aren't really very airtight, particularly when you examine the Psalms. The Psalms have repetition. The Psalms have short, um, short, they're short Psalms, you know, but they're also really long Psalms with lots of kind of rich um, thematic development. So I think to say that one is always better than the other, you can't do that biblically. Um, I think you should always think about what you're doing and why, um, but I think there's a case for that. And I would just say, as far as musical style, the hymn form is not something that really opens itself up to the sort of the classical symphonic model. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, you know, four or six or eight lines that are repeated over and over again. So it really is actually more of a folk song form. And as a matter of fact, you know, Ambrose hymns, he was living at the time of Augustine, his hymns do not follow the classical Latin poetic form. They, fo they follow a more um, popular form. And the English, you know, psalm singing and the English hymns and those forms that we call common meter and long meter, those are basically still the same kind of form that Ambrose because He deliberately didn't do the classical poetic model, right? And, and, and I still think, my, in my judgment, the hymn tunes that arise out of folk music tend to translate across cultures and across the generations better than, than other hymns, tunes, right? And I think it's because, you know, hymns really are, in, in a sense, a popular music form in a lot of ways. Um, I have Hughes Oliphant Old to back me up on that, his book, Leading in Prayer, if anybody wants to pursue that. He says basically hymnody needs to be popular. It, it is a popular form. It's for the people. Um, so I think that, you know, and I'll just make this other point, too, along these lines. Um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and um, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds, all these wonderful hymns, would not allow Handel's Messiah to be performed in his church because he thought the music was too worldly. Now, a lot of people think that that's sort of the epitome of church music, Handel's Messiah. But I'm just telling you, only a couple hundred years ago, John Newton thought that the musical style was worldly. What I mean by that is that worldliness and what it looks like in musical style is an ever-shifting thing, right? And people like Isaac Watts, John Newton, William Cooper, all these great hymn writers deliberately wrote in a style to accommodate themselves to the poor and the, and the uneducated. And they, they, you can read in their writings where they talk about deliberately doing that. I think it's kind of interesting that we've gotten to a point now where lyrics that were written for the poor are sung to musical styles that are associated with the upper class. I just think that that's kind of strange. Um, all musical style has baggage. That, I guess that you know, is one of the, the key points I'm trying to make. And I think there are a lot of people that don't seem to recognize that. They, assume, they seem to think this musical style always means reverence. And it may not. What may be sound reverent to your grandparents sounds boring and pretentious to you. It's, it's just reality. Musical style is a language. Minor, minor chords aren't always sad. If you listen to Israeli folk music, you'll know that that's true. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of things to be said. I don't want this to be a whole sort of discussion about music. But I just think some of those arguments sound good at first until you actually look at the Psalms and you find there's a lot more diversity there. And it's a lot harder to say this thing is bad and this is good. Usually you're making try the best kind of judgments that you can as a fallible person and hopefully in community with other people so that not one person's taste is going to dictate, you know, what, what goes on. I'm kind of a big, big one for 
doing some of this stuff in a community and in a community that reflects a little more diversity than I think we have in a lot of church situations. Yeah. Uh, when you are in charge of Yeah, do, when I'm leading worship and choosing what songs we're singing, do I mix in praise choruses or things about so many words, like I love you, Lord, and if so, why, why not? Um, I did it more in the past than I do now. I'd say the reason I don't do it now is more because the community that I'm working with most of the time, um, we have so many songs that have emerged out of our community that people want to sing. And so over the last couple of years, when I let the students pick what songs they do, they inevitably seem to pick hymns and also ones that have come out of our REF community. And so um, I do that. I, sometimes I do, and sometimes I'll use them. Again, I think, you know, that not every song needs to say everything, right? And so I try and think about the service as a whole, and sometimes there's a place for that. I think those praise courses often work better as our response, you know? And so sometimes I do them. I mean, I have those songs in the REF songbook that we use at Belmont. Um, part of it is, too, I don't have time. If my full-time job was being a music director at a church, I probably would spend more time seeking out the best of modern courses being written, because I, I think there are some. Um, I just generally don't have time to sift through all of that material, and I kind of feel like part of my role at this point in time is to scour through old hymnals and try and find some great texts and give them to people to put in new music. So that's the part I'm going to do. But I, I'm, I, I hope that that doesn't discourage people from trying to find good music, modern music being out there, because I think it's out there. I actually think that the more that we talk about what we really appreciate about the hymns, it'll actually help people to write better modern music, too. So my goal is not just that we sing old hymns and don't ever write modern music. But again, it's sort of like the way I learned how to play jazz. I think if we learn the way the masters work, it really will help us um, understand things. So, um, Okay. Get to the next part. I'll go briefly over this. But using the gifts that God has given us, um, the church, you know, is made up of many parts. First Corinthians 12 is a great text on this. I won't read it now in light of time. Um, but you need to understand, for every gift that's listed in the New Testament, gift list, and there's several places where there's lists of different gifts, there is a corresponding call for all Christians to do the thing that some are gifted for. In other words, some people have the gift of evangelism, but everybody is to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within them, right? Some people have the gift of hospitality, but all elders, and thus I would say all Christians who aspire to maturity, should be hospitable, okay? So what that means is you should seek to understand how can I use my gifts in, in, as a response to God in life and in church, um, corporate gathering of God's people, but understand you may not find sort of the perfect job description that makes you perfectly satisfied all the time. I think that, um, yeah, I, I think there's this sort of false idea that, that I, I meet with a lot in talking to students that what you need to do is figure out your gifts and that'll lead you to the perfect job and then if God really loves you, he'll give it to you. Um, and I think that what you need to understand is your gifts are the way God has equipped you to love your neighbor. But... Sometimes he may call you to operate in a situation that you're not perfectly gifted for, right? And, um, I, you know, I don't think God is necessarily this 
guy who's perfectly driven by the most efficient use of his resources imaginable? I really don't. I think that he tends to do things in a very inefficient way because he has a deeper purpose. I would offer as an example the wandering of Israel in the desert. If you ever look at a map, it, they go all in circles and they double back on themselves. They didn't take the most direct route from Egypt to the Promised Land. And if you read in Deuteronomy 8, you'll find that God says, the reason I did that was because I wanted you to depend more upon me. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the essence. That you would learn that man does not live on bread alone, learn every word that comes from God. So God, I think, sometimes be open to the fact that he may call you to serve in your RUF group by setting up chairs. Or, and you may say, well, I'm not particularly gifted at that. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, it's probably not that hard. You know, maybe you need to be the person to run the overhead. I always love it when somebody comes up to me at conference and just wants to do the overheads. You know, nobody really feels like they know how to do it. And, you know, but it's a great service. Think in terms of you've been gifted to serve. Leadership, even, is always about servanthood. If you're somebody who has the privilege of leading worship in your church or in your RUF, can I just say, please, please be a servant. Um, way too often, church music becomes a place where people try to build their little kingdoms and have their little power kind of situation. It should never be that way. And so, um, you know, use, use your gifts, but, you know, understand your gifts are the way God's equipped you to, to love God and your neighbor, not just to have a smooth, successful life. There's a, a great line in that hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, um, joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. I think often in college we, we can think that, well, I'll really be able to serve God when I get married, I graduate, I have a real job, um, I don't have student loan debt, I'm not so busy. We're always saying that, you know, only if this, 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 then I'll be able to serve God. But the reality is there's, there's a way for you to serve God now and it may involve doing something for him. It also, and this might expand your categories of serving God, it may involve you bearing something for him. Instead of thinking that God couldn't possibly want me to suffer and I need to get out of it as quick as I can. There's some joy to find, joy to find in every station of life, something still to do or bear. Um, I don't know if that necessarily fit here, but I just wanted to throw that in. Um, and, and, and offer, again, pointing this back to what we've talked about the last two days, your gifts are not what makes you acceptable to God. And particularly if you have the kind of gifts that get celebrated in, in the church, worship, being a, you know, a dynamic, upfront kind of person, you really need to hear this and preach this to yourself all the time. What's that story about Alexander the Great that he had a slave? who would sort of whisper in his ear always when he was doing these processions and people were all, you know, falling down and worshiping at a slave would whisper in your ear, remember you're human. Remember you're human. Right. We need people like that. Um, it's good to fall on your face. I remember one time in front of about eight or 9,000 people falling on my butt. And, um, you know, no, no, nothing else you can do. I was playing guitar in this rock band and, you know, first song I started by myself and I played about, three chords and tripped over my cord and fell flat on my butt. And my guitar hit the ground and the neck sort of shifted out of place and it was like shrieking feedback and horribly out of tune and the drummer laughs already fell off his stool. And it's like, all you can do is get up. 
but I remember that story often. You know, when I when I think about you know being nervous about being in front of people, it's like, well, good night. I've already fallen down in front of nine thousand people. You know, <laughs> and I survived. You know, it's no big deal. Um, I, I do think you know this is interesting. Some people, you know, what you always find this kind of interesting thing. A lot of people play guitar because they're kind of shy people. I remember growing up, I would read Guitar Player Magazine, and everybody started playing guitar so they could meet women. And they were too shy to talk to them. And so you find often the people that play guitar that, you know, maybe you tag to, to help out with worship at RUF, they don't feel real comfortable actually leading people. And they almost like, you get the idea that they would rather really want to be invisible. Um, but, you know, if God's called you to lead, lead. And, and say, Lord, help me to repent of being so consumed with myself that I'm just kind of, you know, wanting to hide. Help me. Listen, I'm not an extrovert, but I have to function as an extrovert most of the time. And it's okay. It's okay. I live. I'll, you know, you'll live too. I have a, a diagnosed writing disability, but I write sermons every week. Right? I, you know, maybe being a preacher isn't the perfect job description for my gifts if I sat down and trotted it out, but the Lord's called me to this, and woe am I if I don't follow him into that. So, your gifts are important to understand, but don't make an idol out of your gifts. It may seem like God could never call me to do anything that I'm not gifted for. Sometimes you don't even know what you're gifted for until you volunteer. And um, I think it's really tragic that these days, sort of the pressure on y'all is to find out what you're good at so early in life and then just do that and never do anything else. Never put yourself in situations where you might fall flat on your face. And then we wonder why we struggle with faith when we basically arranged our life so that we never have to live by faith, then we wonder why God feels distant to us. So throw yourself into some situations where you're probably going to fall on your face. It'll be good for you. It really will. Um, let's see. As a people rooted in a church that's bigger than our own time. I, I said this um, already, this passage from Hebrews 12. Um, I mentioned last night in my little book blurb this thing by um, C.S. Lewis about... Um, looking at God through the eyes of those who went before us, his essay on the reading of old books. I just, you know, I remember the first time I came across Jesus on my cross of taken, that hymn text, and thinking, I just don't think anybody in the 20th century would have written this text. I, I just, you know, even people that I think get it pretty well, they would shrink back from saying some of the things that that, that, that text says. Um, and I know, I know about that guy's life, and he lived a very difficult life. And he doesn't say those things easily. He doesn't just sort of say, well, you know, he's not sort of a guy saying, I'm so spiritual that, you know, I, I can say all these things, but I don't really believe it. No, he really came to that position out of immense struggle. And I just think it's really helpful for us to say, you know, 200 years ago, Christians did not assume that God wanted them to be rich and comfortable. And that God existed so that they would feel warm and fuzzy all the time. People didn't think that. And I think it's helpful for me to be reminded about that. Does it mean that they were right? No. But at least gives me pause to question my own assumptions. Just because something's been done in the past, traditionally, doesn't mean that it's right. But if you want to break from it, you should at least know why. And you should be convinced that Scripture would cause you to break from it. I see the tradition as a guide, not as a master. And I think that's, that's the way to look at it. Um, it can be a helpful servant. You don't have to think about everything all over again. 
there's some really great wisdom that's went into sort of the shape of the liturgy. And it, it helps us, rather than trying to think about, okay, we, we want to do all these things in the worship service. What's the best order to do them in that will really sort of communicate in a really rich and powerful way? Well, there's wisdom about that out there. We should use it. We shouldn't just try and reinvent the wheel all the time. But there are times in which some versions of the liturgy in times have distorted the gospel. Some things that have been done in worship services have distorted the gospel and made it seem like we earn God's favor by what we do. So we don't just adopt things because they're traditional, but we think we use it as a way to sort of check our own assumptions. Okay. Um, so we are we we understand that as as a church we're part of a people rooted in something that's bigger than our own time, and that I guess gets me into um, why do we sing hymns. In RUF. And we have, what, 15 minutes? So I'll do a couple of these and we'll pick up some more of these tomorrow and then I'll hit as many of those questions as I can. So hang on. Now here's, here's what I, I came, you know, when I started out in RUF, we didn't sing as many hymns as we do now. We did actually more choruses, though we tried to do songs that were more scripture songs. Um, little fragments of psalms that were set to scripture or different passages set to scripture. Um, but then there were some students like Chris Miner and some other folks that started um, kind of going through the Trinity hymnal and finding some texts that seemed really great, and yet the tunes either were difficult to adapt to the guitar. And, you know, part of this came out of our situation. We're, you know, working with college students. The good part about that is that college students have pretty short memories, so you can try things, and if it doesn't work, well, three or four years later, you've got all new students, and you can, you know, try something different. Um, in some ways, not that you guys are guinea pigs, but in some ways, I think part of the role of college students is to function for the church as a whole as sort of a, a laboratory. Um, I think it's, you'll find actually that almost every revival has emerged from people your age. It just seems that God stirs up new things. Isaac Watts, when he sort of turned the whole English-speaking church upside down by beginning to, to write hymns rather than psalms, was your age. He came home from church one day and said, Dad, the singing was dreadful. Surely, you know, surely we can do something. And his dad said, well, if you can do something better, have at it. And he sat down and wrote a hymn that afternoon, and they came back for the evening church service and sang it. I think that's great. I think we need to let young people have more of an opportunity to try things, even if it falls on its face. It's not the end of the world. But um, anyway, so, um, you know, in RUF we started doing this, and as we began to sing more of these hymns, what was interesting to me Particularly because I lived in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd been part of the Christian music industry. We had all these, you know, you know, experts telling us what college students liked and sending us CDs and saying, do this music. This is college music today. Um, and we were singing hymns, and students were saying, once, once I start singing these hymns, I don't want to go back to that other stuff. And, you know, at, at some point I had to teach them to be charitable and not to throw the baby out the bathwater. But there really was something going on. They were saying, you know, it doesn't really help me to have a whole hour of singing, Lord, I just want to do this. Lord, I want to do this. Lord, I just love you. I love you. I love you. Um, maybe it would be nice to sing about the gospel and about God's promises. Um, and, and sort of once people began to taste some of that, they said, man, what have we been missing? And we'd had a situation really where the baby boomers, kind of your parents, threw out things that were traditional. Uh, I found a sign in an antique store one time. It said, my grandmother saved it, my mother threw it away, and now I'm buying it back. <laughs> and I think that that really, in a lot of ways, happened with the hymns. 
the, you know, the baby boomers said, we don't want any of that old-fashioned stuff. It won't reach people. It's not seeker-sensitive. So they throw all that stuff out, and then, lo and behold, your generation comes along and says, I'm not very interested in the Christianity that doesn't teach me how to suffer and how to die. What's the point? I'm not buying into something that's just to try to make me feel better. If I'm going to buy into this thing, I want to know that this is for real and that it works in the deepest, hardest times and parts of life. And you look around and you find, we don't have any songs that help me understand that anymore. What happened? I say, well, if you go back and look at songs that we sang 100, 200 years ago, there's all kinds of songs about that. And so students began, you know, it's, I hear about, you know, students going and looking through used bookstores trying to find old hymnals or getting on eBay and looking for old hymnals. Um, I shouldn't have told you that because now you're going to be bidding against me. I'm not looking for old hymnals. Um, but I will tell you, you know, if you want to find a cool old hymnal, the best thing is go to eBay, look up hymns or hymnal, and then click on antiquarian books. And there's always a couple hundred of them. And you can get cool leather-bound hymnals from the 1800s for 20, 25 bucks sometimes if you do it right. They make great wedding presents. I give them away as wedding presents all the time to my students. Um, I've got a good stock of them now, so I feel I can let you in on that. Um, but anyway, you know, and you find all these, these wonderful old rich hymns, and we start singing them. And, and so a lot of these thoughts that I'm going to get into now are basically me thinking about why are students resonating with this stuff? And, and you know, they seem to be helping them. I, I remember one of my students... Um, posted something on, uh, on Relevant.com, you know, Relevant magazine, and they have a website. There was an article about um, the story behind it as well with my soul. It was only in the online edition. And she posted something about that and then told me about the article. And I looked at all the comments people had posted, and I noticed that she'd posted this thing. And she talked about how she'd come from sort of typical high school youth group that just sang all these praise choruses and how the first time she came to RUF, she was handed a, note, a little notebook full of hymns, and she just sort of turned up her nose at it because hymns are, you know, automatically means boring music. But the more she kind of stuck around, probably because she got to know my wife, and everybody loves my wife, so she stuck around and began to understand at the same time sort of the gospel from the preaching and seeing that that's what was echoed in the hymns. And she talks about how singing hymns has seriously, she says, changed my life. It's helped me to understand that I can't rely on my love for God, but that God loves me, even, you know, the God who I wander uh, from. And she kind of quotes or alludes to come thou fount, you know, even. So I was like, even the hymns are even entering into her vocabulary about the way she understands the Christian life. There's some serious spiritual formation that's going on. The Spirit is using these because a lot of the truths of the scripture that are sort of filtered out of a lot of the modern songs we're singing are in these hymns. And they tend to be the truths that I think are some of the most helpful for us in being faithful to Christ in our generation. So, um, you know, here's some of the things I, as I try to think about. Why, why are people really, because, you know, when I found, we made that first Indelible Grace CD, and I thought we'd be lucky to, to sell a thousand of them and get our cost back. And we've sold, sold thousands and thousands of them, right? all through word of mouth, and people will buy one. You can track this sort of through the website. People will buy one, and then a week later, they'll buy like 10 of them. And you're like, now, I played in the Christian music you know, group. I, I know the way kind of product sales work. That's really unusual. What that means is that people are saying about this RUF music, I don't just like this, and I think this is neat. I think they're saying, I think this is important. 
and they sort of kind of get on the mission of saying, hey, we need this. So some of these thoughts are maybe me trying to reflect on why do people think we need this. The first is I think we understand that we need to experience God, not just know about God. We long for experience with God, and I will tell you that in the hymn tradition, we have some of the richest spiritual experience um, that there is. I mean, there are a lot of good Christian books you can buy, right? A lot of them about doctrine and, and history and all those sorts of things, but some of the richest sort of love to Christ expressed and wrestling with God, some of the richest of that stuff is in the letters, like people like John Newton's letters and other, other letters, in people's diaries, and in the hymns. And I will say, furthermore, through the hymns is really one of the only ways that you find out what ordinary people thought about God. Generally, history and church history is sort of written from the perspective of the important figures and the, you know, the, the professional theologians and leaders. But in the hymns, you actually find out what common, ordinary Christians 300 years ago believed. What gave them strength, right? What enabled them to persevere and to hold on to God? In the hymns, you get that. You also, through the hymns, get a picture into, into what women have thought, more than you do in Christian books, because for a long time, women were not really given a voice to, to speak about their faith and about their thoughts about God, except through hymns. So I think that that's, that's um, interesting to me as well, because part of my idea about you know, God being glorified through a whole people is he's glorified through two different genders. And they think about things differently. And guys, we can learn from women. And one of the ways you can learn from women is to read their hymns and sing their hymns. Um, another thing, um, you know, I'll, I'll just say this. The, the, the hymns really are not content with us just knowing the truth. They want to connect the head and the heart. And I meet students all the time that that's their great longing, is to connect the head and the heart. And the hymns are really a vehicle for us to do that. A hymn like Arise, My Soul Arise is a prime example. It's saying, okay, this is true. I know that this is true, that Jesus died for me. Before the throne, my surety stands. Do you know what a surety is? A surety, if you ever buy a house. Anybody bought a house? You put down earnest money. Earnest money is money that you pledge, and, and you put down this money, and it says, I'm going to keep my commitment. That's what a surety is. A surety is a down payment that guarantees that the promise will be kept. And so before the throne, before God's presence, Jesus, our surety, stands. Jesus is your guarantee that you will be welcomed into the very presence of the Father one day. And so before the throne, our surety stands. Before the throne, our surety stands. My name is written on his hands. You know that from the book of Isaiah? Um, the, the prophets of Baal used to inscribe the name Baal on their palms with their knives because they thought that the throbbing pain would be a constant reminder to them and would make their God more happy for that sacrifice. God actually takes that image in the book of Isaiah and turns it around and said, I have written your, hand, your name on my hands, which is a wonderful picture of the gospel that God wounds himself so that he'll never forget us. The pagan understanding we got of sort of salvation is that we wound ourselves and hope that God takes, takes note of that and is impressed and welcomes us. The gospel is just the opposite. So in that hymn, we're celebrating this, all these truths that are about why you should have confidence, why you should rejoice today that God has written your name on his hands, that he's wounded himself 
because of his commitment to you. That Jesus, that the reason you can have hope for tomorrow is because Jesus stands before the presence of God and pleads his wounds and says, as it were, Father, of course you have to forgive her. I died in her place. Right? So, so the hymns are, I think, helping us say, I'm, I want that. I don't want to just know that. I want to experience that. I want my soul to arise in response to that. And again, it comes from the Psalms. That, that hymn really has its basis in the, in the Psalm where David says, Why are you downcast, my soul? See, the, 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 the Psalms give us this example of sort of gospel reasoning with ourselves. Soul, if this is true, then you should think differently. You should feel differently. Your affection should be different. This should be beautiful to you, and this should not. And so in, in the, even in, through worship, we're trying to connect those dots. Hymns stretch us. I really believe that, that, that your generation is much less content with a watered-down gospel than your parents' generation. It's, I'm excited about that. But I also know that that is sometimes a burden because there are a lot of churches where baby boomers are making the decisions and they think that the way to reach young people is to water everything down. You see that in the kind of messages that you hear in youth groups and in you know, high school ministry. You see that in the kinds of Bible studies that are marketed to college students that are these silly little fill-in-the-blank books. Like you guys you know, can study deconstructionism and molecular biology and all that kind of stuff, but when it comes to reading the Bible, you have to have fill-in-the-blank books. It's ridiculous. And, you know, my, my mode has always been, you know, to preach to college students like they're adults who can think. Because I know you can. Okay, you may not get everything every time. That's all right. Stick around. It'll come up again. Right? And the same thing with the songs that we sing. I don't think you have to understand every word of every hymn. Um, I think that it's, it's generally helpful to have sort of a, a limited number of hymns, maybe a 30 or 40, that you do in your RUF group for a whole year so that people begin to get those into their heart and soul and they begin to understand them. I think it's good to explain something like, here I raise my Ebenezer in the hymn Come Thou Fount, rather than throw that out. People need to know what an Ebenezer is. I think it's good to, to have to explain some of that stuff sometimes. So, um, hymns stretch us, and I think we need that. Um, we, I, we just don't need any more of this silly, superficial stuff. Again, you know, Life is serious. Life is serious. And um, I think in terms of when I'm, he asked me, you know, what do you think about when you're picking songs? I think about songs that are going to help you when your parents die. I want you to be singing songs that are going to help you when you get cancer one day. I want you singing songs that are going to help you, you know, when you get divorced. And it may happen. I hope it doesn't. But I know this world is a fallen world, and I know that you need to hang on to something more than your love for Jesus. You need to hang on to his love for you, and you need to hear about it over and over and over again. It needs to get into your soul. That's the criteria I think about. I don't just think about what will people like, what will make everybody get a kind of a warm, fuzzy, buzz kind of experience. Now, I'm not opposed to that. I long for God to break in and actually convince us that what we're singing is really true. You know? Um, but, I, but I think in terms of, you know, what we're doing in a, in a worship service or at an RUF meeting is about shaping and forming you to serve God the rest of your life, right? We need to have a bigger vision, I think. Um, we mustn't be afraid of content in our worship services. Um, you know, 
Why is it that Jesus, I might cross the taken, is one of my students' favorite hymns? Who would have thought that? I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, if you go to Lifeway or you go to some other big Christian bookstore and you look at the kind of books that Christian publishers are putting out there, they don't think that people would like Jesus, I might cross have taken. But I'm just telling you, I get so much feedback about hymns like that from students that just can't get enough of it and want to seek out, who is this guy Henry like? What else did he write? Um, I, I just think there's a vast sort of untapped thing out there. People just really want to wrestle with this stuff at a deep level. And I think some of it's generational. I really do. I had an opportunity to train the deacons and the elders at the church I was at a couple of years ago. The elder candidates were more in their 40s. The deacon candidates were more in their late 20s. And it was fascinating. As we're going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, the elder candidates really were less interested in it than the deacon candidates. And it shouldn't be that way. Not that deacons don't need theology, but generally, you know, the elders are the ones that you think of as more the theologian kind of people. But it really was a generational thing. The, the guys in their late 20s were not going to buy into this Reformed theology thing just because I said so. They were going to wrestle with every bit of it. And I just thought, isn't that fascinating? We used to do a thing at that same church where we would have corporate prayers that the whole congregation would pray together, and it would just get flashed up on a screen and you would be supposed to join in the prayer. And I had my students start to say to me, I'm not going to pray that until I've had a chance to read it and make sure I really believe it. So we had to start printing it in the bulletin as well so that the college students could read it ahead of time and know that they were really going to join in. I think that's great. But I think that that really surprised the church leadership. So, you know, don't, don't be mad. But, you know, get to a place where you can have some influence and um, maybe make a difference in all this stuff. Um, I'm going to leave it at there because the next point opens me into a whole big topic. Um, so we'll pick this up tomorrow.